This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. COVID-19 Impact on Pediatrics. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, Filling in for our moderator, Dr. Jim Allen. Well, I'm Dr. Jim Allen. Dr. Jing Jing Mao is off this week, so I'll be guest hosting today's MedNet webcast. And we're going to take a look at how the COVID pandemic has affected children. For the past three years, American healthcare has really focused on preventing the infection, treating those who become sick, and warning those who died. Because COVID causes much more severe infection in older people than in children, most of the attention has been directed towards adults. For example, data from the CDC shows that the risk of dying from a COVID infection was 51 times higher in 65-year-olds than in children. And the COVID mortality was 305 times higher in 85-year-olds than in children. It now looks like the pandemic is beginning to fade. And that means that it's time to redirect our focus on how the pandemic has affected the survivors. Well, every generation is defined by the societal circumstances during childhood. Baby boomers were affected by Vietnam. Gen Z was affected by the development of the Internet. Our current children are called Generation Alpha. But Gen Alpha could perhaps better be named as Generation COVID because of how the pandemic is going to have resonating effects throughout their lifetimes. Today on MedNet, we're going to take a look at the impact of COVID-19 on pediatrics. I'm pleased to welcome our guest. Joining us by video is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Micah Skeens. Her research has been on the psychosocial impact of diseases such as childhood cancer. And here in the studio with me is Pediatric Pulmonologist and Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Sabrina Palacios. 
Sabrina, how does the COVID infection present in children? So the COVID infection presents in children from an acute standpoint, the same way that we see any other respiratory virus. That's gonna be fever, sometimes high, sometimes low grade, runny nose, cough, congestion, headache, generalized malaise and achiness, similarly to what we would see with the flu, RSV, even rhinovirus. What sequela of COVID are you seeing in children? So as a pediatric pulmonologist, we are definitely getting referred the children who have persistent cough, persistent shortness of breath, and are generally feeling like it's difficult for them to keep up in their day-to-day -day activities. And that's what we'll talk about a lot today. Well, thanks, Sabrina. For all of you viewing, don't forget that you can view this and all 120 of our current MedNet webcasts by going to ccme.osu.edu on your web browser. And if you prefer to get your continuing medical education by podcast, just go to your podcast app and search MedNet21CME. Also, you can email us with your questions about pediatric COVID by using the Ask a Question icon at the bottom of the MedNet webpage. And now let's get started with today's webcast and look at how the pandemic has affected children's well-being. Micah? I am excited to be here today to talk to you about the COVID-19 impact on pediatrics and beyond the disease, understanding the children's well-being during the COVID-19 pandemic. First, I wanna disclose that this is actually a picture of my daughter and I think we are thinking about COVID less these days and it's three years now, but try to take yourself back. This is a good capture of the moment in time. We were about two weeks into the pandemic and she was working on her video journals for her remote schooling. And I'm a helicopter mom, not a COVID researcher. That's my disclosure. Uh, but I am a researcher during my day job and a nurse by training. And listening to the video journals of these eight-year-olds made me really begin to wonder, how was the COVID-19 impacting our children? While the physical aspect of it was not severe, definitely I could see the toll on their emotional and mental well-being. And so we undertook a study to try to further examine that. So we'll talk to you today about the well-being of children and adolescents, socio-ecological factors that are contributing to their overall well-being, and what were their perceptions early in the COVID-19 pandemic. It was really important for us to hear their voice and to know what they were experiencing, as well as look at the changes that have occurred over time. And while we know, obviously, there were physically ill children and adolescents and adults from the pandemic, other effects included emotional, social, and mental well-being. And this is the pandemic by numbers and children. This data was from about uh, a week ago, and there were 15 million cases. And you'll see that children accounted for less than 20% of all cases. And fortunately for our kids, hospitalizations were low and the cumulative death was also low. The 0% comes from three states that reported no deaths. And so physically, our children were not as affected by the pandemic as others. But even though the disease was rare, severe illness was rare, we do know that the long-term impacts on their mental health and their emotional health was significant. 
And so factors that influence those effects are both for the child, their social isolation, family stress. We know in the literature that family stress under any circumstances impacts our children. Their routines were changed. They had virus-related anxiety, not to mention the school closures and remote learning. But then family factors also played a significant role in the influencing effects, from financial instability to childcare, job and income loss, and then ultimately losses of family members related to the virus. And so when we think about what factors are negatively impacting children's health and well-being, there are kind of three main buckets. So the social distancing when, without being able to go to school, the remote learning, which kind of started this whole study of their overall well-being, led to social isolation, uh, time away from friends, Loss of family income leads to family stress, which leads to stress on the children. And then disruption in services, and these services include not only school, but healthcare services. We had children of vulnerable populations not receiving preventative care, vaccinations, routine were getting missed. And specifically in my area of pediatric cancer, we know that these families no longer received ancillary services, and this lack of ancillary services led to significant decrease in quality of life for these families. And so we know that, we know a lot about what happens to kids during disasters, but we don't know a lot about what happens during a pandemic. There was early in 2000 when the pandemic first started, we know that the UK youth were reporting worse mental health outcomes and worse physical outcomes, but the US data was very limited in the beginning. We also knew from Canadian and Chinese children that there was decreased rates of physical activity and that Chinese children were reporting increased distraction, irritability, and more fear, like, like all of us at that time. There was one study early on in the pandemic, it was a cross-sectional study by Patrick and all that looked at parent outcomes. And 25% of parents in the study reported worse mental health and 14% reported worse behavioral health among their children. In this cohort of parents, single parents and parents of young children were the most affected. But when we looked specifically for details around quality of life and psychosocial functioning in children and adolescents, there wasn't a lot to be found. And so we really wanted to understand their well-being and to qualitatively explore what, what the children were experiencing through interviews. And so I don't know what you were doing in the early days of the pandemic. This isn't me, but it's a good depiction of what I was trying to do, which was work from home and manage children and do remote schooling. And so in thinking about how are we going to recruit these families and thinking about where I was at, at the time, I thought we need to meet these families where they are, which is on their laptops or on their phones. And so we set out to do social media recruitment. And we worked with our marketing department to to pay for sponsored ads to recruit families that were interested in COVID-19 research. And we plan to ask both parents and children. So the idea was that parents could enroll in the study and we would ask them specific questions. You'll see there the COVID exposure and family impact scale and then about the quality of life of their child. But the children are who we really wanted to hear from. And so through the parents, through social media, we would recruit the children into our study. 
our results were actually surprising. We were funded by an intramural grant at Nationwide Children's. We hope to get 250 families, and you'll see there that we had five, almost 500 children and 700 parents that participated. And so when you look at the demographics, we, the child age was around 12. Um, we were pretty equally matched for gender between male and female. And unfortunately, though, our sample was majority white. And we really worked hard in the last six weeks of our study. We did specific zip code targeting for those of lower socioeconomic status and minority status within within Facebook and we're able to increase our sample to 10% of non-whites. However, we were still majority white. But in subsequent research, we found that social, this is not unlike most social media research, which is unfortunately um, not very heterogeneous. The other interesting part was that the majority of families that participated uh, made more than $100,000. So we know we weren't reaching the families that we were really interested in. Um, one other key thing up in the upper right corner is that the Midwest was mostly represented. And we think that's because the ad was also shared on the Nationwide Children's Facebook page. Although I will say all 50 states were represented in the study. So this is an, um, data from the COVID exposure scale. So this is uh, Dr. Ann Kazak's measure, which looks at both direct and indirect exposure and impact of COVID-19. And so you'll see that at time one, which was in May of 2020, that the most of the exposure really came from the COVID measures. So stay at home orders, closed, childcare being closed. Um, Families did not have to live separately at that time. And when we look over at the next slide, you'll see that really the exposure, the direct exposure to disease was pretty low. Um, and the death from COVID was pretty low with a mean exposure of eight. And this is on a scale of 25. So overall, early in the pandemic, the, the COVID exposure rate was low for our cohort. But when we looked at impact, that was a bit different. So the impact looks at not only parenting and how you're able to care for others, but physical and emotional well-being. And this is for parents in time one, and you'll see that their physical well-being as well as their emotional well-being was significantly impacted. The measure also looks at distress. And so the measure asks on a 10-point scale how much distress the parents were having and how much they thought their child was having. And you can see there that parents reported more distress than what they thought their child was having. The overall COVID impact score for our entire sample was 45 on a scale of 60. So pretty moderate impact early on in the pandemic. We also asked the children, we modified the, we modified the measure and asked the children. And you'll see, interestingly, their physical well-being wasn't as affected as their parents. However, their emotional well-being early in the pandemic is pretty striking. The other interesting piece of this data is when you look at their distress scores. Their distress scores were less than what their parents projected. They, were, they reported a distress of five, where parents reported them at almost six. But they were very in tune to the distress that their parents were feeling. Parents reported a 6.2 for themselves, and the children reported a 6.17. And then we looked at quality of life and loneliness, assuming that overall quality of life for these kids and their loneliness was, was increased. And you'll see here that 
total functioning as reported by the children. On the left-hand sample is your normative sample. So normative sample scores are usually around 82.8%. But in this sample of 500 um, children and parents, they reported a quality of life score of about 75, which was significant. And that was pretty close to what the parents also reported, also significant. And then loneliness mean for a normal sample is 50, and our sample reported loneliness scores of 56. So definitely seeing increased loneliness as a result of all the social isolation. But interestingly, social functioning in both groups was not significant. We looked at some covariates to try to control for what may be driving these results. And you'll see here that ethnicity and prior income, as well as child age and child sex, were definitely correlated to potential outcomes and quality of life. And so then we had asked some questions in our survey about communicating with friends and family relationships. And so this is a moderated mediation model that looks at the impact of COVID exposure, COVID impact on overall quality of life. And we controlled for age, sex, and ethnicity and prior family income. But we asked the question, if kids were communicating with their friends, did that buffer this? Did that help improve their quality of life? And surprisingly, because we hypothesized it would, the answer is no, it didn't make a difference. The method in which they were communicating with their friends or the amount of time. But interestingly, when we looked at family functioning, and family functioning was using the NIH Promise tool, it's a short form family functioning scale, and it was reported by the children. When we looked at family functioning, it did make a difference. So those kids that, import, that reported improved family functioning or higher family functioning did have improved quality of life despite COVID impact. And probably my most, the most fun part of this study was our qualitative sample in which we got to interview kids about their experience. And we had over 300 families agree to interview. We, we ended up interviewing 55 children. Their mean age was 12, although we interviewed from eight to 18. And the eight-year-olds talked just as much, if not more, than the 18-year-olds. Um, and it was such a, just such an eye-opening experience to be able to do that. Which, interestingly, we were doing from our basement on telephones and recording with recorders because we were in the midst of um, the COVID pandemic and not at work. But what we learned, in short, was that it wasn't all bad for the kids. And while they did have challenges and they were worried about uh, the physical nature of COVID, they were specifically very, one of the main themes of worry was around extended family members or older family members and if they would uh, get the disease and then obviously succumb to it. But what they talked about most was that they enjoyed the time they had at home and they enjoyed the quality time with family. They talked a lot about getting to try new things, which included games with their family, new hobbies, and um, cooking. They got to actually play. A lot of our teenagers said they finally got time to relax. They weren't running to different practices or different after-school extracurriculars, and they enjoyed the relationships they were able to establish with their family. One 16-year-old girl I interviewed said, I finally feel like I know my mom after 16 years. And that was really striking to me as a mother of a daughter um, who was very busy and understanding the need for that quality time. 
So while we think about the overall arching kind of themes of our study is that there were definitely negative impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic early on. When we saw those specifically in families of lower income and, the, and in older children and in girls. But there were also some positives and increased quality time and time at home was also important to our families. But we wanted to know what was happening long term. So we did a six month follow up. This happened in about in December. And we had, unfortunately, only 200 families completed the six month follow up. And when we looked at attrition, there was no difference in demographics, but the non-participating parents at time one did have lower family functioning and, and higher loneliness scores, which is really unfortunate because that's the group of families we would love to know more about so that we can begin to develop targeted interventions. You can see the demographics here on the right-hand side and see that they were pretty similar to the time one demographics. But when we looked at the scores over time, what we learned is that COVID exposure, although exposure to actual disease or direct exposure with symptoms and hospitalization increased, the overall exposure score was about the same. But the impact scores for parents and children increased, as did the distress scores. And you can see that the parent and child distress scores increased pretty significantly. So despite a lack of change in exposure, there was increasing, there was increased distress. And we looked at quality of life and loneliness at time two, that was essentially unchanged, but they were associated with impact and family functioning. Within quality of time, uh, quality of life, the only thing that changed over time was school functioning, which was worsened in both groups. And older children or adolescents and those of lower income had a greater decline in total overall quality of life, and specifically in the physical and school domains. At time two, we also decided to look at resilience because there's a lot of literature that suggests that resilience affects quality of life and stress and internalizing behaviors. And when we looked at the resilience at time two, you can see here that the scores reported by both the parent and the child were pretty high when compared to normative samples, somewhere between the 50th and 70th percentile. So in summary of our data, we know there were early negative effects on children's quality of life and loneliness, and these remained stable over six months. But it did give us an opportunity to identify those families at high risk with those of lower income, older age, and worse family relationships. But what we know is research is needed in more diverse families. And so when we think about COVID and our social determinants of health and what we do know is that there is an equity in the literature related to income, immigrant background, language barriers, parental education le level, and access to healthcare. We also know that black and Latino children were more likely to experience poverty and economic hardship early in the pandemic. Non-citizens were barred from the stimulus checks and food insecurity was alarmingly high in these groups. We also know that from a school perspective, early in August of 2020, Asian, Latino, and black children were far more likely than white children to be exposed to school closures and distance learning leading to exasperated academic outcomes. And this is in addition to what we know are the physical differences. 
And so from the perspective of physical outcomes, we don't know a lot. Um, the data is mixed. Some studies show that kids had improved physical activity and physical outcomes because they were outside more and doing more. Yet other studies show that there was alarmingly more time on tablets and social media and gaming and so physical outcomes actually worsened during the pandemic. So I would say the jury is still out in relation to physical outcomes and long term for children. And when we think about quality of life, we know that it was worse than normative samples, but it didn't change significantly over time. When we more, looked more globally at the data to see where it fell, our, our data fell, some reflected on decreased quality of life from pre-pandemic samples similar to what we found. Some found no change. And interestingly, in both Spain and Germany reported improved scores in quality of life. But what we do know is that COVID unfortunately affects mental health outcomes of our children. Depression, anxiety, fear, and concern for pan pandemic impact on life increased. There's a recent systematic a review that came out that showed that there was a parental increase in yelling, spanking, and emotional, um, emotional rejection. And because of those things, all of these mental health outcomes continue to increase. There was a 2020 November article in the Washington Post that talked about because of the coronavirus, depression, anxiety were rampant and that young adults, 18 to 24, were hit harder than any other age, with 75% of them struggling. And the data that I didn't add to this presentation is around suicidal ideation and self-harm, which is up significantly across the globe. Specifically in the US, it's up 20%, with young adults being the highest of 25.5%. And so, the factors that we know from both our study and the literature that contribute to worse mental health outcomes are older adolescent age, being female, coming from rural areas or lower socioeconomic status. If your family member was a healthcare worker, which leads to more anxiety, and then chronic physical conditions. And we know that based on our 500 cancer families that participated in a subsequent study around COVID impact. But there are protective factors, and there are factors that lead to better mental health outcomes, which include physical exercise. We cannot emphasize positive family relationships enough, both in our study and in the literature. Positive family relationships have been shown to improve outcomes, both mental health, physical, and emotional outcomes for kids and adolescents in the COVID era. And so I think as clinicians, paying close attention to those family relationships is essential providing social support and access to entertainment. And so as clinicians, our, our obvious next question is what can we do about it? And unfortunately, there's not a lot of interventions currently to prevent and manage these mental health outcomes. In a systematic review by Bolt, there was a mix of parent-child specific interventions, but only four were specific for children. There were some digital interventions to try to reduce emotional symptoms and, and improve emotional well-being, and two remote recess and exercise interventions. Overall, the limitations of what we know are that most of it's cross-sectional with a lack of longitudinal data, specifically now that we're on the hopefully tail end of COVID, a lack of validated measures to really understand how COVID is impacting our children. And 
obviously research including minorities and underserved populations is missing and we need to be able to reach these families. So from a clinician perspective, the implications are really thinking about how we can address pandemic-related effects during our routine visits, that just because we're no longer masking and that it's, we're not in the throes of it, that it's still in, impacting both our youth and our parents, and ultimately our youth, to begin to address cumulative effects on school performance and outcomes and what those will look like even years from now finding ways to increase mental health services for our children, and then paying close attention and thinking about future interventions for those with known factors that are contributing to worse outcomes. Well, thanks, Micah. For the second half of today's webcast, we're gonna take a look at the impact of COVID on children's lung health. Sabrina? Thanks, Jim. My name is Sabrina Palacios. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at Ohio State. I've completed all my training through Ohio State and through Nationwide Children's Hospital. And I think hearing a lot of Micah's points um, are similar things that we thought about when thinking about children and their, and their pulmonary health. What are the long-term effects? And that's what we'll be talking about today. I have no disclosures for this talk. So through the objectives over the next 28, 25 minutes, we'll talk about mostly long COVID in children. It's definitely what we're seeing more of now, and we'll talk about what the acute symptoms are, but really focus more on what children are experiencing in the weeks and months after that acute infection. We'll review our post-COVID -pul post pulmonary clinic that we have at Nationwide Children's Hospital, the population that we're serving, that we're testing, what we've seen from them as well. And we'll discuss those persistent symptoms and what lung function changes we have seen in those patients. So where are we at with COVID right now? Just about a week before you know, filming this webcast, COVID was declared no longer a public health emergency by the WHO. And they said, and I agree with, that the emergency phase is over, but COVID is not. So there's no longer the same level of danger, but we certainly are learning more and more about long-term symptoms, even with mild infections. From a, from a health standpoint in children, there are definitely similarities to other respiratory viruses, but there are also many differences. A little bit just to review the acute infection of COVID in pediatrics, for most children, it's usually mild. Symptoms are similar to other respiratory and viral infections, although this has fluctuated with the different variants. You'll see cough, fever, rhinorrhea, sore throat, sometimes some dyspnea, although I'd say that's not often a, a symptom that's in the acute phase. We get more worried about infants who are less than 12 months old as they can have more respiratory distress and it's more common for them to be admitted to the hospital when they have otherwise no, no other health history. The GI complaints of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea are more common in older children and teens. And I'd say that we really see less of the loss of taste and smell than we saw with the early strains. Similar to other respiratory viruses, we do see most children recover within about one to two weeks. Beyond that one to two week initial infection, which can definitely be very mild, we also obviously worry about MISC or the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. This is a, a very low percentage of children who get COVID, less than 1% of confirmed COVID cases, 
Although we know that we have seen MISC occur in children who had almost an undetected COVID case, may have just had an exposure to a friend or family member, and then in that two to four week time period after that exposure, they do develop some of these symptoms um, that are very similar to Kawasaki disease and demonstrate significant inflammatory response. It was initially described in the UK, but then slowly we did start to see that early on in the pandemic described in the US, described as a late phase reaction, late phase inflammatory response with marked elevation in inflammatory markers, diarrhea and abdominal pain. We know that MISC generally occurs in older children and in adolescents. It occurs two to four weeks after COVID infection. It's usually previously healthy children. So this we're not actually seeing in a lot of our patients who have underlying medical health needs. The treatment typically involves IVIG and plus or minus steroids, similar to how we would treat Kawasaki disease. And then these patients are gonna need continued follow-up because some of the big things that we worry about are the effect on the heart, potential for myocarditis, and those patients are gonna to need to be seen by cardiology. So what are we seeing now in you know, the outpatient pulmonary clinics? It's really this post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 or PASC. We're seeing this also in adults and there's been more research in adults and what sorts of symptoms they have and potentially how to manage it. There's definitely some differences between what they're finding in adults and what we're finding in kids, but we do know that children are presenting with persistent symptoms in a longer term, longer time period, aside from that acute infection. Some people were calling these long COVID symptoms, long haulers or long COVID. PASC is the official diagnosis. Similar symptoms were actually reported for SARS and with the outbreak of MERS in 2003 and 2012, respectively. We know that to have actual, actual long COVID, you need to have persistence of symptoms at least four weeks after initial infection, although more current definitions are really about symptoms persisting beyond 12 weeks after that initial infection. We really feel like in that four to 12 week time period after initial infection, it's more of a subacute COVID where you're still having more persistent acute infection type symptoms as opposed to the more long haul symptoms. The World Health Organization definition of PASC in pediatrics is that you need to have at least two months of persistent symptoms starting three months or 12 weeks after your initial diagnosis. Also, these symptoms cannot be explained by any other diagnosis. Uh, the AAP has a similar definition, but they really focus on the physical symptoms and that they're impacting daily function. Also noting that these symptoms may relapse and fluctuate over time. I will say anecdotally, a lot of the physical symptoms that we are seeing with children translate into pretty significant mental health symptoms. The fact that you know through their shortness of breath or chronic cough, they feel like they're not able to participate in the usual activities and the usual sports that they had been involved in previously. The most common symptoms that are reported by children are similar to what's reported by adults. This is headache, fatigue, myalgias, chest pain, dyspnea, and concentration impairment, or that sort of brain fog feeling. Um, there have been several studies also commenting on whether some of these, like the concentration issues, fatigue, headache, or feelings of just sort of general malaise, could also be related to effects from lockdown. 
isolation, depression, some of the things that Micah talked about in her earlier discussion that are impacting their mental health and could also lead to issues with their physical health as well. We know that from adult uh, uh, research, as many as 30% of hospitalized adults report persistent symptoms. The most common of those is dyspnea with 22%, as well as continued cough and fatigue. In adults, there are several pulmonary specific issues that were thought to come about early on and that are still being monitored for. Decreased diffusion capacity with potential for restrictive physiology is something that was noted in adults. Potential for fibrotic changes, chronic ground glass opacities, but there was limited, limited literature on bronchospasm or bronchodilator response, although there was some report of decreased FEV1. And this led us to thinking about what do we need to know about children? And do they have those same sorts of ongoing symptoms and ongoing changes? Uh, getting together with a few of my colleagues, we decided to establish a pulmonary post-COVID clinic and to try to research or at least monitor a lot of these children. We wanted to know what are the common respiratory symptoms? Did they have changes in lung function, in their lung imaging? How long after infection do these symptoms persist? Does it matter if they are vaccinated with regards to having PASC or these persistent symptoms? As when we first started this clinic early on in 2021, there were still a lot of patients who were not vaccinated. Does a prior history of pulmonary disease, in children we think about this mostly as asthma, um, but also thinking about our patients who have things like cystic fibrosis or bronchiectasis from another cause, does that increase the likelihood of persistent pulmonary symptoms? And are there other risk factors that make PASC more likely for children? There were a few studies that were slowly coming out as we got this clinic together that were mostly retrospective and observational and just looking at what are the symptoms that children are reporting after having COVID. There was a small, there was a Dutch study from, that was uh, published in August of 2021 that looked at 89 children. Dyspnea was reported by over half of those surveyed. It didn't really speak to whether or not that was causing actual functional impairment and making it so they couldn't participate in daily living as they had desired, but they're certainly reporting persistent symptoms. More recently, there was actually a radiology study out of Germany that was published looking at MRIs and ventilation perfusion scans. The healthy controls had best VQ, mis VQ match. The lowest VQ mismatch in patients were those who had most recently had a COVID infection. And it was found to be most likely if patients were less than 180 days since their COVID infection to have some persistent VQ mismatch. It didn't correlate this with any symptoms of dyspnea, but it's striking to notice that there were some actual imaging changes that were seen. There was also a very small cohort out of Philadelphia uh, from CHOP that described long-term symptoms from COVID, dyspnea, cough, and specifically exercise intolerance, which we had been hearing a lot of in our clinic. They had six-minute walk data on nine patients and did see a significant uh, change in heart rate elevation, although no change in oxygenation, and they didn't have any follow-up data. It did demonstrate that 28% of their cohort had bronchodilator response and spirometry, which is something that had not been discussed with adults. Uh, there was also a prospective study from Russia that looked at long-term symptoms after hospitalization, 
the prior study from Philadelphia was not specifically patients who'd been hospitalized, uh, but actually largely patients who had been outpatient. The risk factors for worsening symptoms in the study from Russia found that risk factors included older age and history of allergic or atopic disease. In our post-COVID clinic, we hoped to comprehensively evaluate PASC and pulmonary symptoms specifically in adolescents. Part of that had to do with the fact that we really can't do pulmonary function testing on younger children. So we said that children needed to be over eight years old to be evaluated in this specific clinic. That's not to say that we haven't been seeing children who are younger than that saying that they have some new symptoms or having some exercise intolerance, just that their lung function testing reliability is a little bit lower. So it's harder to do consistent testing on them and monitor it over time. The symptoms that we saw described were typical PASC pulmonary symptoms, including shortness of breath, either resting or with activity, although most commonly with activity, cough, wheezing, chest or throat pain, and decreased exercise capacity. In our post-COVID clinic, and what we ended up reporting on, um, was doing standardized testing so that we could look for any patterns in these patients. We decided to do a six-minute walk, a chest x-ray if one had not been obtained within the last month, spirometry, both pre and post bronchodilator, plethysmography, DLCO testing to look at diffusing capacity, and any other imaging testing um, or other evaluation determined by the evaluating physician. We had three physicians who were seeing patients in this COVID clinic, uh, myself and two of my colleagues, and we had pretty similar uh, discussions about when we felt like getting exercise testing or a chest CT was necessary. So we aim to describe long-term subjective and objective pulmonary abnormalities. We initially observed 82 adolescents, mostly previously healthy and largely not requiring hospitalization. We saw them on average initially 3.5 months after infection, although there were a fair number that initially were referred in the four to six weeks after initial infection, which we really felt was way too soon and still in that sort of subacute phase and in the early healing of the initial COVID infection, not really quite a long COVID or PASC type of patient. Our initial cohort was actually pretty well split between uh, female and male patients, although a slight predominance to female sex. And in follow-up, we definitely saw a lot more females than males. Um, similar to Micah's study, we had a large portion that were Caucasian, and I don't have socioeconomic status on here, but we know that we did get a large number of patients from zip codes from a higher socioeconomic status. We did try to target more minority uh, and lower socioeconomic status groups through uh, advertising and talking with pediatricians, but we still ended up getting a, a larger sample of Caucasian patients. We saw that there were few comorbidities aside from asthma, and that was one of our biggest you know, diagnoses that we wanted to evaluate. There were about a quarter of the patients that we saw had a history of usually mild asthma. Very few had moderate or severe persistent asthma. There were also a quarter of patients who had anxiety, which below that red oval, you can see that about 26% reported some anxiety prior to having COVID, so even earlier in their life. So symptoms reported at presentation, generally cough, 
Chest pain was pretty frequent as well, and we shared a lot of these patients with the cardiology clinic um, who did uh, concurrent testing with them. It wasn't at the exact same time, but most of the time patients were seeing both us and a cardiologist to get the most thorough evaluation possible. 51% uh, did report dyspnea at rest, which was surprising, um, although and 90% reported exertional dyspnea. That was truly the largest group that we were seeing, generally high school athletes that were feeling like they couldn't keep up with their prior um, level of activity and they couldn't keep up with their teammates. We got chest x-rays on every single patient um, and the vast majority were normal. 8% we found were abnormal, generally hyperinflation. Um, and as you can see in this chest x-ray, there's a little bit of slight flattening. I unfortunately don't have a lateral film, but a little bit of flattening of the diaphragm and otherwise pretty normal. This patient has a touch of some kyphosis, um, but unrelated to COVID. We did have 16% of our patients who had CT scans. Those were generally normal, and those were typically obtained because of some chest pain or very sudden onset of short shortness of breath and being evaluated for potential for PE. And PE was by far and away not something that we were really worried about in these patients. I think in this cohort, we had one patient who had been hospitalized for uh, thromboembolic disease, and he was being followed by hematology as well. This is a, an image of a patient who had a pretty unexpected outcome, actually. The vast majority of our patients had pretty mild illness to begin with um, and then had more persistent disease that developed in the months after. Um, this is, these are slices from a CT scan from an 18-year-old female who was not vaccinated, um, who had severe COVID-related ARDS um, and developed fibrosis and some bronchiectasis during the course of that illness. Um, she had to be discharged from the hospital on oxygen, which was not something that commonly needed to happen or needs to happen at this point after being discharged from the hospital with COVID. And she had an inpatient stay that included some rehab that lasted, I want to say, two to three months. It was pretty long. Um, and she actually is doing significantly better at this point. But this is not what we were typically seeing. We were typically seeing very normal imaging. We really wanted to look at functional limitations using a six minute walk test because a lot of our patients were reporting dyspnea with activity. Um, and so we looked at their six minute walk test at their first visit and then also at their follow-up visit, which was generally about three months after that initial visit. We saw that there was improvement overall in the distance walked and also that the Borg score of perceived dyspnea, perceived dyspnea was improved in that second test as well. Um, our other big parameter that we wanted to look at was lung function testing. And as you can see here, pretty much all of our patients had normal lung function. Almost all of them were right around 100% when looking at their FEV1. We were most concerned about the potential for obstructive disease, especially in our patients who had a history of asthma. Um, they all I don't think that anyone in our initial cohort had any abnormalities in their diffusing capacity or any concerns for restrictive disease either, which was also very reassuring um, because of the fact that we were concerned that fibrosis and restrictive disease could be happening in adults after COVID. We really wanted to make sure that wasn't something that was happening in kids. So 83% of the children had normal spirometry. 31% had bronchodilator positivity, meaning that they had an improvement in their FEV1 of 12% or greater after getting bronchodilators. 
this is just another graph that helps to represent where those uh, numbers are falling for FEV1. You can see that all of the DLCO numbers are hovering right around 100. For the FEV1 and FEF2575, which are large and small airway flows respectively, there's a little bit more of a spread uh, down to the abnormal range, um, but still typically falling right around 100%. So after evaluating all of these children and particularly wondering about bronchodilator response, we sort of came up with three different phenotypes that we felt like we were seeing. Although most patients had normal lung function, there were still about 30% that had bronchodilator responsiveness or what we called sort of more an asthma phenotype. That actually correlated pretty well with the patients who had a history of asthma or a history of having some diagnosis of some bronchoresponsiveness when they were younger, maybe needing albuterol with illness when they were toddlers. We also saw a group, about 15%, who had paradoxical vocal fold motion disorder, previously known as vocal cord dysfunction or VCD. Um, and these were patients who had normal lung function, but then they just stated that they really had this persistent shortness of breath and difficulty with breathing during activity. We referred them on to, to ENT for evaluation for VCD. Then there was a third group that had persistent functional limitations. Those patients had completely normal testing throughout everything, imaging, lung function testing, six minute walk data, seeing ENT if we referred them, and they still had fatigue, persistent dyspnea, and no other diagnosis that we could find to explain these symptoms. For the bronchodilator responsive patients, uh, we are generally prescribing them inhaled corticosteroids or an ics laba combo. And I can't say that there's necessarily rhyme or reason. Personally, I tend to add in the laba when we know that they're definitely participating in sports and they're feeling episodes of shortness of breath throughout the day as opposed to just one definitive time. 10% um, were getting just an ICS at that point in time, usually the kids who are not athletes. At follow-up, 85% reported clinical response and typically that was about six months after their initial infection. Um, due to mostly normal lung function testing, we didn't repeat it for all patients, but only if we had seen that they had lower lung function at that initial appointment. This does beg the question whether or not these kids would have improved all on their own over time, but most of them did feel like the inhaler made a big difference for them and how they were able to participate in their sport. In conjunction with ENT and speech therapy, we treated about 13% of those 82 individuals seen for vocal cord dysfunction. Um, there have, I have read some case reports that there have been actual issues with the laryngeal nerve and whether or not there's a peripheral neuropathy that could be associated with that. We know that there are other peripheral neuropathies that can be associated with COVID, um, but we only had one patient who was treated with a superior laryngeal nerve block and did quite well with that actually. And those with persistent functional limitations, you know, almost all of our patients presented with fatigue and dyspnea, and about half had no abnormalities on imaging or lung function testing. We wondered about deconditioning. Was it that when they had COVID or when they were in lockdown, had they not really participated in sports the way that they had previously? Now going back to those sports and having the same expectations from coaches and on themselves of how fast they should be, of how much endurance they should have, were we just having higher expectations than we should have? Um, or, you know, is there some true functional limitation? 
Um, we ended up referring about 13% of our patients to pulmonary rehab. We have a pediatric pulmonary rehab group that's at Nationwide Children's Hospital um, that helps improve endurance and strength. There's also huge mental health support there. And we had a feeling that there, you know, a lot of these children had a lot of depression and reports of anxiety going along with their COVID diagnosis and with their persistent symptoms. And we know that that mental health support in pulmonary rehab is really very helpful. What factors help predict outcomes? We know that obesity, anxiety, having a history of cough and dyspnea were associated with a decreased six minute walk distance, although we really didn't have a large number of patients who fell into that obesity category. We also know that female sex and having initial dyspnea with their COVID infection were associated with higher Borg dyspnea and fatigue scores, which are recorded during a six minute walk test. There were no significant factors associated with elevated heart rate alterations during the six minute walk test or the bronchodilator response, aside from noting that it seemed to be the patients who had asthma who had bronchodilator response. When doing statistical analysis, it wasn't technically significant. Other studies looking at the risk for overall long COVID include older age, adolescents versus younger children, which is really who we were seeing in this clinic, female gender, which is consistent, and poor mental or physical health prior to COVID infection. This brings me to kind of my last point about mental health and ties back into what Micah has seen. We actually have mental health coordinators in our clinic. They help with our CF clinic, they help with seeing our patients who have chronic pulmonary disease and helping link them in with mental health uh, providers. And we have brought them in to help with our clinic as well. They do a screening visit at each new appointment for anxiety and depression, and then follow along with patients who have elevated scores. We have not diagnosed anyone actually with new mental health diagnoses, but we have had several patients who are already on medication or have providers or are looking for a provider. There was a recent article in the American Psychological Association that discussed the true psychological issues with pediatric long COVID. And we know that you know these physical changes and not being to, able to perform up to their previous ability has significant mental health impacts as well. And I think this is the next steps that we are hoping to take with the patients we are seeing in our pulmonary clinic. Well, thanks, Sabrina. Is COVID infection different from other childhood respiratory infections with respect to a lot of the post-infection symptoms? I'd say as far as the post-infectious symptoms, there are some differences and there are some similarities. So. We know that after having a bad case of the flu or RSV or rhinovirus, you can have this persistent post-viral inflammatory airways disease. And we know also that through some research with the infectious disease, that getting RSV at a young age definitely can set you up for an inflammatory cascade that can predispose you to asthma over time. And we're seeing similar things with COVID as well. I think it's gonna take some more research to know how different that is, but there are definitely some similarities. One last question. I, I was really struck by the high incidence of paradoxical vocal cord dysfunction in children with symptoms after a COVID infection. When should the primary care physician suspect vocal cord dysfunction and how is it diagnosed in children? So I would say that we suspect vocal cord dysfunction in children who are not responding to bronchodilators and yet they're having symptoms of dyspnea with activity. Uh, because the most common reason to have some dyspnea with activity is to have exercise-induced bronchospasm, which albuterol, given before they exercise or as a rescue medication, is gonna help with. 
if we're not seeing any change at all, then I get some suspicion of having vocal cord dysfunction. I also worry about that when they're having shortness of breath immediately into the activity, as opposed to 10 to 15 minutes in, which is more consistent with exercise-induced bronchospasm. The way that we would diagnose that is by getting pulmonary function testing and looking at specific signs on the flow volume loop of that uh, test for that child, and then referring to ENT, who's going to do an actual nasopharyngeal scope to look at the vocal cord movement. Well, thanks, Sabrina. We're going to finish up with a couple of final key points about COVID in children. Micah? I would just like clinicians to remember that despite uh, the pandemic seems to be over and we're no longer masking, that we need to remember the long-term sequela of what the pandemic is doing to the emotional and social well-being of our children and begin to address these when we see them in clinic and think about the importance of family functioning and continue to strive to find interventions to improve their overall outcomes long-term. And Sabrina. I would say that my final key point is that, well, the sense of emergency isn't there for COVID anymore. We are certainly still worried about those long-term outcomes in children, and that there, if there's any concern at all, I think referring to a specialist for further testing is completely reasonable and can be helpful in a lot of these children. Well, Micah and Sabrina, thanks again for joining us today. And for all of you viewing, don't forget that you can get American Board of Internal Medicine maintenance of certification points for viewing MedNet and then answering the post-test questions following the webcast. Dr. Jingjing Mao will be back next week, and her guest will be Dr. Carolyn Larkin for an update on leukemia. We'll see you then.